KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Governor Newsom proposes more air resources against wildfires. These fly much faster. They allow for more suppression. They're a lot more safe, which is significant for our Cal Fire brothers and sisters. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. We mark the anniversary of George Floyd's murder by examining local police reforms. In the end, when we talk about this, it's intersectional. And we have to see the way that systems of inequities are really pushing up against each other and why we're seeing these outcomes time and time again. And we'll hear about the history of injustice that led up to the crime. And arts reporter Beth Accomando brings us an audio postcard on the start of the Star Wars phenomenon. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. With most of California already in severe to extreme drought conditions, Governor Gavin Newsom is proposing a massive $2 billion infusion into state wildfire preparations. Those proposals include 1,400 new firefighters, forest management with fire breaks created up and down the state, and more firefighting aircraft, including 12 Firehawk helicopters. These fly much faster. They allow for more suppression. They're a lot more safe which is significant for our Cal Fire brothers and sisters. Newsom says so far this year, California has already seen hundreds more wildfire outbreaks than at this time last year. And 2020 was, of course, a record-breaking fire season, with much of the destruction coming from lightning-sparked fires in Northern California. Joining me is Thomas Schutz, a fire captain and public information officer for CAL FIRE and the San Diego County Fire Authority. And Captain Schutz, Thomas, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Where does San Diego stand in face of this widespread drought in the state? How bad is it here? We still have a huge challenge ahead of us here. Ironically, we're probably one of the better counties um, throughout the state uh, sitting at abnormally dry, which is uh, not a place we want to be, but with most of the state in some level of drought, um, we're looking slightly better. We, we still haven't seen that rainfall, that moisture that we need down here. We know that we still have a huge challenge with the fuels out there, all the grass and brush. And so um, we, we certainly uh, have a long summer to, to look forward to as well. But, um, you know, we know statewide it, it's going to be a challenge all around. Now, one fire scientist has described the vegetation in California and the West as being, quote, so dry, it's like having gasoline out there. Is that the case here in San Diego? It's certainly like that when we have the the wind factor. Um, The the winds can really make or break our firefight out there. Um, And we saw that just a few weeks ago with the Southern Fire out in the desert, um, the Shelter Valley area. uh, Fire was able to take off overnight, grow to over 5,000 acres. I mean, that's almost one third of the acreage that's burned in the state. And I was out in the desert where the fuels are, are relatively sparse and not a whole lot of continuity of the fuels, but we had the wind pushing on it, a very strong wind actually out of the West. 
and that 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 wind can make up for a lot and it can make those fires uh grow it, it exponentially and it, it causes a lot of problems for us is the drought in the west the only reason for this dangerous wildfire season maybe our forest management policies to blame it feels like there's a lot of things coming together. You know, down here in San Diego County, we don't have as many of the the timber forests that a lot of people think of when, when you're thinking about Northern California. A lot of our forest communities are the chaparral communities, the, the brush um, intermixed, and, and uh, of course, with, with homes and, and populations out there. I'd say a, a big problem for us is uh, it seems like we've had a lot uh, shorter winter times, we haven't been getting that moisture. And so those chaparral communities, the, the brush is a lot drier than it has been historically. That's causing some issues for us. And then of course, um, you know, not being able to uh, manage the land as, as much as we'd like over the past many decades. Uh, these stands have the potential to build up and, and create more fuel for us. And so it's something that we're excited about looking um, into the future about really taking an aggressive stance on doing these fuel, mod, uh, fuel management projects, these fuel modifications to, to really try and prep the landscape to make it easier to fight fires when they do happen. Right now, how is San Diego preparing for wildfire? What resources are available? We have a lot of things ramping up. You know, every year, um, San Diego County um, as a whole is is a, a bit of a powerhouse on the in the statewide system. Um, with Cal Fire, we're we're one of the biggest units. We have San Diego County Fire that we work with that helps uh, build up our arsenal down here. So, with over forty one stations, we're always ramping up this time of year. This year is unique in that we've gotten a lot of funding for extra firefighters. So we're using those firefighters to build up our fire crews. That's one of our, I don't want to say weaker, but weaker points right now. And that's because of the conservation camps that we've been counting on for, for so many years and are such a huge asset to our program have slowly seen a, a decrease in population. And we really need to bolster those hand crews. They're the ones who are cutting line around the fire. So they build our containment line. They separate the burned fuel from the unburned fuel. And they're really the unsung heroes. And so um, we're going to be getting the, the C-130 at Ramona as of next year. And so we're looking forward to that. And of course, all the firehawks coming in. But right now, our biggest staffing, building up that staffing, why have the workers of the Conservation Corps been depleted? Is that because of a change in the prison system? Well, we have seen a decrease over the last several years. A, a lot of different policy changes um, with the way that uh, prisons are ran and how folks are held on to um, has changed the numbers that are coming into our camps. And uh, because of that, that, statewide, we had to close um, eight of these conservation camps. Um, two of those camps were in San Diego County. And so where we had four camps before, two, two male and two female, um, one male and one female camp has been closed. And we're working to bolster those numbers with our firefighter one hand crews. Now, the predictions for this year, as we've been saying, are bad for wildfires, both in California and across the West. So how do firefighters mentally prepare when they know something like that is coming? Um, we're working hard right now in this springtime, in this interim, to make sure everybody's trained up and ready to go. Everybody's well rested. If folks do need time off, they're getting it while they can. We actually sent out a, a strike team of engines, which is, is five engines and a chief, uh, last night to, to go assist um, up in Riverside. And so we're already starting to see our, our resources get deployed. And so we, we're, uh, we're taking steps to make sure that we're ready to go for that. I've been speaking with Captain Thomas Schutz, Public Information Officer for CAL FIRE and the San Diego County Fire Authority. Captain Schutz, thank you. Thanks for having me. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd took his last labored breaths while Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on his neck. What happened that night reverberated around the world. One year later, we reflect on how George Floyd's murder galvanized a racial justice movement in Minnesota that was years in the making. Here's independent journalist Georgia Fort with a look at what progress has been made since then. On the evening of May 25th, 2020, 46-year-old George Floyd went to Cup Foods, a neighborhood convenience store at the corner of 38th and Chicago. He went in to buy some cigarettes. It was a beautiful spring evening, sunny and warm, but not yet hot and humid. Floyd laughed and joked with folks in the store. He talked sports with the clerk, 19-year-old Christopher Martin. After paying for his cigarettes, Floyd bounced out of the store, light on his feet, and got into a car parked out front. Martin noticed the $20 bill Floyd used had a strange bluish tint to it and suspected it was fake. Cup Foods had a policy that if they found counterfeit bills in the cash register, clerks would have to pay for it out of their own pockets. After asking a manager what to do, Martin went out to the parking lot to ask Floyd to come back in the store. But Floyd was sound asleep. That's when the cops were called. 17-year-old Darnella Frazier was walking to the store with her niece and saw the cops with Floyd on the ground. She sent her niece ahead into the store and pulled out her phone to record what was happening. Well, you got him down, man. Let him breathe, Lisa, man. Let him breathe. I've been trying to help out. So let him breathe, let him breathe. Thanks to Frazier, the entire world was able to watch what happened next. Let that breathe, my face. Just get up. They saw Floyd lying face down with his hands cuffed behind his back. They saw Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pressing his knee into Floyd's neck for more than nine minutes, almost casually, with his hands in his pockets. They watched as Floyd's initial cries of distress, saying he couldn't breathe, he was in pain, and at one point even calling out for his dead mother. All eventually went silent. The brutality of the video unearthed layers of trauma, anger, and despair that had been building for years. In the days that followed, protests erupted in Minneapolis, across the nation, and across the world. Ultimately, a jury would find Officer Derek Chauvin guilty of murder, and many pronounced the verdict a significant win for police accountability. But how much has really changed? Here in Minnesota, George Floyd's death was just the latest in a series of high-profile fatal encounters for Black men with police. Back in November of 2015, 24-year-old Jamar Clark was shot by Minneapolis police. He died the next day. (laughs) 
Within hours, protesters gathered at the 4th Precinct. The protest turned into an 18-day occupation, continuing right through Thanksgiving and into early December. Civil rights attorney Nakima Levy-Armstrong, who was, at the time, president of the Minneapolis chapter of the NAACP, was there. And I believe that that has marked the turning point in Minnesota's history because it taught us we can withstand blizzards, we can withstand <laughs> aggressive police, we Come can on, withstand white <laughs> supremacy, and we can stand up for the life of a young Black man who deserved to be alive and to continue to fulfill his purpose upon this earth. Despite the occupation, neither officer was charged, and demands for police accountability grew. A year and a half later, on July 6, 2017, elementary school cafeteria worker Philando Castile was pulled over near the state fairgrounds. His girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, and her four-year-old daughter were both in the car. We got pulled over for a busted taillight in the back. He's, he's covered. He they killed my friend. He's licensed. He's carried to, he's licensed to carry. He was trying to get out his ID and his wallet out his um, pocket, and he let the officer know that he was, re he had a firearm and he was reaching for his wallet and the officer just shot him in his arm. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. The Ramsey County attorney charged Officer Euronimo Yanez with second-degree manslaughter and two felony counts for dangerous discharge of a firearm. It's believed to be the first time in Minnesota's history a police officer was criminally charged for a shooting that happened while on duty. But the jury acquitted Yanez on all counts. Demands for police accountability grew louder. And one will feed right to the emergency. Hi. Um, I can hear someone just a month later, on July 15, 2017, Justine Ruschek was shot by Minneapolis police officer Mohamed Noor. She died 20 minutes later. Unlike Jamar Clark and Philando Castile, Ruschek was white, and the cop who shot her was Somali. Despite a lack of any footage of the event, Noor was found guilty of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. He was the first police officer in Minnesota history to be found guilty of murder for an on-duty death and only the fourth in the nation. Ruschek's death was the beginning of an awakening for Minnesotans, that the judicial system can produce accountability when the victim is white. Demands for equal police accountability grew stronger. So when George Floyd cried out for help in that long, agonizing video with Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck, the community shifted quickly from horror and helplessness to anger, outrage, and action. I think about George Floyd. He hollered. He, he said, Mama, 11 times. Kimberly Handy Jones's son was shot by police in 2017. The officers who shot him were never charged. She now supports other mothers whose children were killed by police. My son called me on the phone minutes before they killed him, and he said, Mama. So that just really, it, uh, it shifted my fight. It shifted my words. You know, it's always close to home, but I felt like at that very moment, it was in my home. And, you know, I always talk to mothers and they say, well, right now the focus is, is George Floyd. And I say, well, if George Floyd this is going to be the blessing that opens up the floodgates of justice, I'm in. I'm all for it. 
But I always remind them that George Floyd is the face of thousands that have went on before him. After having already experienced the deaths of Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, and so many others, the racial justice movement was better organized and better prepared than ever before to respond to the death of George Floyd. In late May and early June of 2020, thousands took to the streets in the Twin Cities to process their grief and demand change. The coronavirus had already taken hold in Minnesota, but organizers kept people masked up and hydrated. When darkness fell, there was also vandalism, arson, and looting. Dozens of buildings burned, including the third precinct. One person died. Governor Tim Walz called in 1,500 members of the National Guard, the largest deployment in state history at that time. And protesters denounced the aggressive, militarized response. In the aftermath, investigators would discover many of the fires were started by white people, some of them from outside the Twin Cities. Meanwhile, the site of George Floyd's death became a community gathering space. Residents like Marsha Howard worked together, renaming it George Floyd Square and turning it into a site for art, mutual aid, and protest. We're residents who were just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And it's our neighborhood, so we're the ones that sweep the the street. We feed people, we house the houseless. Howard is one of many activists who have made it their personal business to fight for change. In the years since the death of Jamar Clark, Black community leaders such as Jeremiah Ellison and Andrea Jenkins successfully ran for seats on the Minneapolis City Council. And soon after George Floyd's death, nine members of the council called for defunding the police department. The proposed ballot question was ultimately blocked by the Minneapolis Charter Commission. In July 2020, Governor Wall signed a new policing bill that banned chokeholds in most circumstances. Critics said the bill was weak and a far cry from the kind of real reform that was needed. Meanwhile, tensions continued to grow between authorities and communities seeking change. In November 2020, the Minneapolis Police Department arrested more than 600 protesters who had marched onto I-94. Then in December, Dalal Eve was shot and killed by Minneapolis police, just a mile away from where George Floyd took his last breath. The police then raided the home of his family, guns drawn. Only after they'd finished searching the home did they inform them that their son had died hours earlier. Police say Id shot first, and to date, no officers have been charged in the case. Demands for police accountability grew tired. We thought they learned the lesson until they killed our brother Dolat here in Minneapolis. And so that's why today and every day from today, we need to continue to demand for justice for Dolan, for George Floyd, for Jamar Clark, for Philando Castile, and for the thousands of lives, the thousands of lives that many people don't know their names because it wasn't recorded, because people didn't come out in this manner. Coming up, the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin. 
You're listening to George Floyd a year later. I'm Georgia Ford. George Floyd a year later is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities in partnership with KMOJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, and with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. You're listening to George Floyd a year later. I'm Georgia Ford. May it please the court. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, Good morning. As the trial for former police officer Derek Chauvin got underway, black Minnesotans were not just looking for justice for George Floyd. They were looking for signs that maybe, just maybe, Minnesota was capable of change. We need this system to know that we are watching. It's not just the Twin Cities. It's not just the state of Minnesota. It's not just the United States of America. But the whole entire world is watching this case. While the jury was still being selected, the city of Minneapolis announced a historic settlement with George Floyd's family for $27 million. Chris Stewart, an attorney working with the Floyd family, said the settlement set a precedent in how the justice system values Black life. The number today changes evaluations in civil rights for a Black person when they die. Because what you don't know is the rigged game that we always have to play when we take one of these cases. Because African Americans are not valued high when they are murdered by law enforcement in these cases. In comparison, Diamond Reynolds and Philando Castile's family received a total of $3.8 million in their civil settlement. Shamar Clark's family received just $200,000. The Derek Chauvin trial was broadcast live. As witness after witness took the stand, it became clear they'd been traumatized by George Floyd's death. When I look at George Floyd, I look at I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. But it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. He should The Minneapolis Police Department's own Chief Madera Arredondo denounced Chauvin's actions. That is not... Uh, part of our policy. That is not what we teach, and uh, that should be condoned. Chauvin's defense attorney maintained that it was George Floyd's drug habit and poor health that killed him, not the knee on his neck. Before the lawyers could make their closing arguments, another young, unarmed black man died at the hands of Minnesota police. On April 11th, just a few miles away in Brooklyn Center, 20-year-old Dante Wright was out driving with his girlfriend when he was pulled over by police. He immediately called his mother to let her know. Moments later, he was dead. All he did was have air fresheners in the car and they told him to get out of the car. He got out of the car and his girlfriend said they shot him. Mm. He got back in the car and he drove away and crashed. And now he's dead on the ground since 147. 
Nobody will tell us anything. Wright's death forced many to reckon with the reality that nothing had really changed since George Floyd's death the previous spring. Again, here we are. When are these people gonna stop? And at that point, demands for police accountability became relentless. The governor deployed 3,000 troops from the National Guard, twice as many as what had been deployed after George Floyd's death. For nights on end, protesters gathered at the Brooklyn Center Police Department. Protesters, journalists, and medics were met with tear gas, rubber bullets, and flashbangs. Within days, Kim Potter, the officer who shot Dante Wright, was charged with second-degree manslaughter. But community leaders said it wasn't enough. What happened to Dante Wright wasn't an accident. What happened to Dante Wright was murder. We are tired of this justice system, a system that works for white people and a system that does not work for people of color. However, Ben Crump, the attorney for George Floyd's family and now Dante Wright's family, said the swift charge was significant. We are making progress, and I want to encourage those protesters those young people, those activists, that you're making a difference in Minneapolis, Minnesota, right here now, is ground zero for that change. Community activists continue to apply pressure with an increasingly unified voice. Jelani Hussein, the head of the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations and a devout Muslim, stood side by side in solidarity with Nakima Levy-Armstrong, a devout Christian, calling for police accountability and meaningful public safety reform. On April 20th, after deliberating for 10 hours, the jury found Derek Chauvin guilty on all three counts in the murder of George Floyd. Neighborhoods erupted in cheers and honking horns. For the first time in Minnesota, a white cop is being held accountable for the killing of a black man. The next day, the Justice Department announced a widespread federal investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. The city of Brooklyn Center announced a groundbreaking public safety resolution that would put policing under a new public health-oriented department. While certain efforts surged ahead, others lagged behind. Police reform bills at the state legislature were pushed back to a special session. Their fate still uncertain. One year after George Floyd's death, the intersection where he died remains closed to traffic. The Minneapolis mayor has said the city plans to open and back up soon. In the meantime, it continues to be a gathering place for people to grieve, celebrate, and reflect. Dr. Joy Lewis is a community healer and author. She says it's been beautiful to see the community stepping up to take care of one another. Ain't no Red Cross coming for us. When we are shot um, and killed by the police or by the state, ain't no Red Cross coming for us. You know, ain't no people coming for us who's coming. They're sending in troops. It's going to be a war zone. They're closing down the grocery store. We become our own Red Cross. We create a healing environment for ourselves. That's what's happening. That's what the revolution is, is bringing. It's bringing us back to each other.
The national spotlight on Minnesota over the past year has illuminated some painful truths. While Minnesota is widely considered a wealthy state with a great quality of life, it has one of the largest income gaps in the nation. Black families make on average just half the income of white families. Foundations and other institutions are now funneling millions of dollars into Black-owned businesses and nonprofits. Artist Louis Blaze says a fire has been lit. We need to see a new birth of a nation, and that is our nation. That's when we restore ourselves as a people, as a culture, and get back to our identity, our history, right, and heal with one another. While we invest more time and energy into ourselves, into our self-care, into our love, into our healing, and then into our economical structure— I think the key is in unity. Like, whatever we do, we need to do it together. Blaze is part of a growing movement advocating for community solutions. The Minneapolis Police Department remains grossly understaffed, and alternative public safety programs have yet to be put in place. Former officer Kim Potter goes on trial December 3rd. The state trial for the other officers involved in George Floyd's death has been pushed back to March 2022. The Justice Department has indicted all four cops involved in George Floyd's death, but a date has yet to be set for trial. The federal investigation of the Minneapolis Police Department is ongoing, and demands for police accountability continue. I'm independent journalist Georgia Fort. George Floyd, a year later, was written and produced by Georgia Fort and Marion Combs, with production assistance from Justice Sanchez and Aaron Warhol. George Floyd, a year later, is a production of Racial Reckoning, the Arc of Justice, a journalism project created and supported by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities in partnership with KMOJ Radio, the Minnesota Humanities Center, and with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Online at racialreckoningmn.org. Joining me now is KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter Christina Kim to talk about the police reforms happening here in San Diego and across California. Christina, welcome. Hi, Jade. So what type of police reforms were spurred by Floyd's murder and then the following protest here in San Diego? So right away in June, we saw some reforms happen. The San Diego Police Department and the Sheriff's Department banned carotid restraints, which is when officers apply pressure on the sides of a person's neck in order to subdue them. Later that month, they also made de-escalation a requirement instead of just a recommendation as they had previously. And they put more explicit measures for how officers could intervene if they saw their fellow officers using excessive force. However, it's important to remember that there had been a big push for police reform years before George Floyd's death in large part because we've known since at least 2016, there's been at least three studies that have shown that San Diego police and sheriff's departments disproportionately stop, arrest, and use force against Black and Latino people. So for the advocates that have been pushing for change, these reforms were seen as kind of too small and a little bit late. And what we saw in July was the Coalition for Police Accountability and Transparency, which is an alliance of community groups here in San Diego that formed in 2016, they released a number of police accountability reforms that they wanted to see, that they felt pushed the envelope more. That included cutting the police budget, the creation of an independent police oversight committee, 
as well as a stop to pre-tech stops. And so it became it opened up a conversation as more San Diegans were open to the conversation of reform. And what we saw is that shortly after the coalition, you know, released these kind of new reform ideas or kind of this package of reforms, the city council then put Measure B, which again had been in the works for a while, which would change the city charter to create an independent oversight committee on the November ballot. And what we saw is that in November, it passed with nearly 75% of the vote. So that's where we saw some some real reform happen here in San Diego. And, you know, one of the issues with previous police oversight commissions is that they don't have any teeth. You know, they they have no authority to make changes or really investigate. They've only been able to make suggestions. Do you have any sense of how that might change under new legislation? Right. Well, with Measure B, and the, new, and the creation of the Commission on Police Practices here in San Diego, this commission is going to be able to do independent investigations, meaning they will no longer rely on internal police investigations of incidents, be it use of force or when a police officer uh, discharges a weapon. So that independence is very crucial and seen as a real uh, reimagining of, of police accountability. They're also going to have the power to subpoena. So that makes it very different from the community review board that existed prior to the Commission on Police Practices. That said, it's important to note, the San Diegans voted for Measure B in November, we're in May, and that, that new commission still hasn't been implemented. Some advocates have said that this is just moving too slowly. And even though we have an interim commission, that interim commission doesn't have the capacity to do those independent investigations or subpoena power. Thus far, they're just reviewing cases as the previous community review board had done. And as you mentioned, these are changes local advocates have been calling on for years. What's been their reaction? Advocates have been a little bit concerned about how slow moving implementing this new commission has been. I spoke with Andrea St. Julian, who is the founder of San Diegans for Justice, as well as somebody who actually helped craft Measure B. She says she's still hopeful, but she's remaining vigilant. And something that she was concerned about when I spoke with her is just last week, the transition team that's setting up this new Commission on Police Practices actually voted on a motion on whether to allow police officers to attend closed deliberation and voting when the commission is investigating incidents. In the end, the Rules Committee decided to not make that recommendation. However, St. Julian feels that this is a concern because it could really jeopardize the commission's independence, which is really what Measure B was founded upon. That said, in terms of the speed in which this is happening, she does feel like there's a real goodwill and a good sense that it's going to happen. And, and that's been echoed by City Council member Monica Montgomery Stepp, who's championed this commission for a long time. She says no one is dragging here. And to really just remember that these kind of monumental changes take time and need to be set up correctly. And so we know what's happening here locally in San Diego. What are you seeing on the state level? There are bills that are looking to expand the ban on the use of chokeholds. Uh, we're also seeing some bills in the state legislature that would create a victim's compensation fund for any injuries in, sustained during an interaction with law enforcement. And I think most importantly, and where, where I'm really keeping my eye on, is SB2, which would empower the state to create a decertification process for any police officers that have engaged in misconduct. So it's essentially a licensing system in the way that if a lawyer 
or a doctor commits malpractice, they can be removed from the profession. Well, this would provide that very same power. And we've talked a lot about policing. How does that fit into the larger movement? Right. I think it's important to remember that we're talking about this today because it's the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. And while we really focused on police reform, I think it also opened a larger societal question about racial inequities. And really, if we're going to talk about race and inequity in this country, it has to go beyond policing. And so I think as we continue to grow as a society and reflect on this anniversary, it's important to think about how inequities exist in our society beyond policing. And I'm thinking specifically just the way we we see and feel them now. For instance, according to a 2018 study by Redfin, only 30% of Black San Diegans own their home in comparison to 61% of white San Diegans. We also know that during the pandemic in San Diego, Latino and Black people contracted COVID-19 at disproportionate rates. And so I bring these things up to say, I think that these are the conversations that are going to move us forward. And they are actually very much related to criminal justice, because in the end, when we talk about this, it's intersectional. And we have to see the way that systems of inequities are really pushing up against each other and why we're seeing these outcomes time and time again. I've been speaking with Christina Kim, KPBS racial justice and social equity reporter. Christina, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando is an avid Star Wars fan who enjoys celebrating May the 4th be with you. But she wants to remind people that it was May the 25th in 1977 when Star Wars opened in theaters and changed the movie landscape forever. She spoke to fans who saw it opening day in San Diego as well as in foreign countries about their memories. Here's her audio postcard. I remember the Fox fanfare. And when you're sitting in a single screen house with anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people with this massive wall-to-wall screen, it's, it's pretty heady stuff. And then the blue that said, you know, a long time ago in the galaxy far, far away, and the screen went black. And then bam! It was like nothing you'd ever seen. And then when the first ship comes on screen and the, the theater is like doing its rumble rumble and you're like, whoa. If you were into effects and model making in particular, that first shot was just mind blowing. What blew you away right from the beginning was the Star Destroyer. Because sci-fi at that time hadn't really done a great deal of showing scale in space. How could they have possibly made you know something so large? From that first scene, I had bought into it and I was in for the ride. You, you were engulfed in it, but you were also with 1,500 other fans with you. Yeah, it was just sitting there slack-jawed, and, and the, the sound, of course. You know, we'd never experienced that kind of sound before. It just changed my life. The Rebel cruiser went by, and the Imperial cruiser went by overhead. Like, it's coming right over your head onto the screen. 
and mouth dropped open. I can't believe I'm watching this. And then all of a sudden, you see that Star Destroyer, and it's coming and coming. Okay, I'm convinced. This is really awesome. And all of a sudden, there's this break, and you're like, oh, it's finally over. No, that's just the docking bay. My jaw just progressively kept dropping and dropping. I was like, oh my God, is this thing ever going to end? It's so big. And I sat there, that whole movie, just leaned forward in that seat, just staring at that drive-in screen, just listening to that little tiny crappy speaker, you know. Don't be nervous, Dave, for the princess this time. Just completely enthralled with what I was seeing on the screen and completely enamored with Star Wars. It was, it was an incredible, really life-changing moment for me. So then I had Star Wars curtains, Star Wars bedding. I started collecting the Star Wars figures. You know, I had the Star Wars album. It was just my life became Star Wars. Hi there, my name's Trevor Newton. Um, I saw Star Wars in, in June of 1977. I was nine years old. Um, I grew up in a very small town in Oregon, and really the only option to see movies was the local drive-in. Hi, I'm Colleen Kelly Burks, and I was 21 years old when I saw Star Wars at the Valley Circle on the day before it premiered on the 25th, so I saw it on the 24th. I was totally blown away. I think the basic thing is, is a sense of community for us because we knew everybody at that line, at that theater, at any time, night or day, were fans like us. And we, we wouldn't be subject to ridicule or disparaging remarks because we're all there for the same thing. This amazing movie that brought us together and made us a fandom to be reckoned with, basically. Hi, I'm Sean Mullen, and I was seven years old on opening day of May 25th. And then when we showed up, we were the first ones at the theater in San Diego on opening day. So around the second or third time we went to see Star Wars, we're, we're standing in the long line. So I was curious where the movie was at that was showing inside. So I went to the exit doors and I put my ear to the door and I could hear Darth Vader and Obi-Wan having the saber duel. And I would tell, give my parents an update. Hi, I'm Julian Mushkin, and I was 11 years old when I first saw Star Wars in 1977. It was so packed already that I had to sit by myself off on the right-hand side of the aisles because we couldn't find any seats together. But once the movie started, I was just mesmerized. Uh, so my name's Gary Dexter. I uh, grew up in the United Kingdom. I was nine years old when um, what we now know as Episode 4, A New Hope, dropped. Uh, what was interesting about the UK is at that time we got all of our big movies at least six months later than uh, the US and so we had an additional six months plus of hype and marketing and so by the time the movie actually came out and I got to see it I was on the, the verge of exploding but it did change my life. What was funny was you know, you'd have what we now think of as nerds of which I was one and so it was normal that we would get together and talk about it but it had um, such a far-reaching impact on people and it sort of crossed into, you know, jocks and a high degree of, of young girls. And uh, it was funny because you would walk around and you'd hear people talking about it and you would think to yourself, I never thought they would be into it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Yazdi Patavala and um, I was about nine years old when I first, first watched Star Wars. It was at the Sterling Cinema in Mumbai, in India. I remember uh, just being in awe of it and I'd gone to see watch the movie with my with my family and I think when I was that age 
uh, at least in India, you never went and watched with your friends or your neighbors. You always watched with your family. I got a bad feeling about this. Even though I was nine years old, there were parts of it which were pretty scary to me. Like to this day, I remember there's that one scene where Luke, Leia, Han, and I think Chewie, they're all in this trash compactor. One thing's for sure, we're all gonna be a lot thinner. I was terrified. I, was, I remember thinking, oh my God, the walls are literally closing in on them. And I, you know, I remember like being physically scared of it. Like I, I put myself in their shoes and it was like the worst thing imaginable to me. Listen to them, they're dying, R2. Curse my metal body, I wasn't fast enough. It's all my fault, my poor master. We're all right! Hi, I'm Mark Tuttle. I was 12 years old when Star Wars came out in, in 1977. And I think that was the, the perfect age to see Star Wars. Even though we're dealing with lightsabers and blasters and aliens and other worlds, it looked real. And it made you think it was real because it's like, that ship is filthy. Look at the X-Wings. I mean, I mean, would you really want to fly in that? I'm Lisa Morton. I was all of 18 years old when I first saw Star Wars. I saw it on opening day at the Valley Circle Theater in San Diego. Um, and I was in kind of an interesting position because I actually had been following the production of the film for about a year before it opened. And fortunately, it more than lived up to everything I was hoping for. Hi, my name is David Glanzer, and I saw Star Wars for the first time. Uh, the weekend that opened at the Valley Circle Theater in San Diego. Uh, you know, it played in San Diego for a year, I think over a year. It was one of very few cities that did. And uh, Lucasfilm had issued a, they call it the Star Wars birthday poster. And it was, uh, you know, a, a cake with, uh, I think, one candle and uh, some of the action figures around it. And that's, you know, a prized possession of mine as well. But it was an experience that I, I can't explain because I've never been to a movie since that had people booing and hissing, clapping and, and applauding. And it was just remarkable. Hi, I'm Karen Schnabelt, and I was 22 years old when Star Wars came out. Uh, we went back repeatedly. I saw it 35 times that summer and eventually just lost count. Too short for a stormtrooper? Huh? Oh, the uniform. It was very hard to get good photos of various costumes from various angles. So we would actually go and watch it with a sketch pad in hand with the, you know, and track a particular costume through the whole movie and take sketches of it. I remember there were always lines. We were always waiting in line to the point where we had our own line sitting equipment. We would bring lawn chairs. We would bring decks of cards. We would bring other things to occupy ourselves with. And then a few minutes before the line was due to go in, we would put those things back in the trunks of our cars and, and then go in and see the movie. I'm Ian Duckett. And I first saw Star Wars when I was 12 years old. We tried to see it at a movie theater but we were unable to because it was just sold out. It was constantly sold out. So my father in his wisdom packed us all up into his Grand Prix and took us to the Mission Bay drive-in. I imagine it was kind of torturous for my parents because we, the kids, we were just amped. We were so excited. I'm Kevin Ring. I was 13 years old when I saw Star Wars for the first time at the Valley Circle Theater on opening day, May 25th, 1977. We'd never seen a line for a movie, let alone one that wrapped all the way around the building. 
people knew how to react instinctively. It kind of just touched on this underlying cultural thing that we all had and we all knew but didn't realize until it came out, until we saw these things on the screen and reacted. I think one of the most memorable aspects of it was the energy of the audience. When Darth Vader appeared out of the steam and smoke from the blasting open that, that door, You had this character that was all in black, wearing a helmet that was reminiscent of a World War II German helmet. You figured he was bad and everybody was booing and hissing. And, and that was just like, whoa, I'm not the only one that wants to make noise at this. That kind of set the tone for the whole rest of the film. It was awesome. It was a communal experience for those 800 or however many people in that theater. It was transformative, it really was. I don't think I'd been in a movie where people cheered like that for things. It was just an absolutely different experience and it changed everything. I remember the first time they showed the Millennium Falcon going in hyperspace and the crowd was hooting, hollering, go, whoa, wow, you know. Of all the places I've watched a movie, the audience participation has never exceeded than that in India. People talk to the screen, people, you know, cheer on, they scream. It's, it's a whole other level of engagement. Come on, buddy, we're not out of this yet. And we were so excited. We were just jumping up and down, and every time a TIE fighter flew past or Obi-Wan chops a guy's arm off, it was cheering and jumping up and down. It was so wonderful. I wanted to see it again because I wanted to see the, the, the spaceships flying and I wanted to see the, the lightsaber battles and I definitely wanted to see the Death Star. You may fire when ready. It was commonplace for British audiences to sit quietly, but I do remember when the Death Star blew up that everybody cheered because I think everybody had been so invested in this classic fable that looked unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. People had got, gone on that journey and then when it blew up, everybody cheered. I do remember that. And that battle sequence was really cool too. Yeah, you just like, you know, on the edge of your seat. Is he gonna make it? Are they gonna make it? Oh no, watch out, <laughs> you know. Still to this day, see, I, I mean, how many years later and I can still be all enthusiastic about it because I still remember how cool that was. That audio postcard was produced by KPBS arts reporter and Star Wars fan, Beth Accomando. You can find more Star Wars memories on her Cinema Junkie page at kpbs.org. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.